420, Chapter 27 of The Count of Monte Cristo. Book talk begins at 1020. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 420, Permitted. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. I hope you are well. I hope you are looking at a fun and fabulous summer for you and yours, or conversely, a fabulous winter if you are in the Southern Hemisphere, I think. I am perched precariously on the precipice of our summer plans, and that means that I think, very similar to last year, I'm going to have to have a summer schedule lest I wind up wanting to hurt someone badly. (laughs) Scheduling here is already starting to get pretty tricky. So I will be sending out a newsletter with the proposed Craftlet summer schedule, just so you have an idea of when episodes are going to post and you won't worry about it or think, why, why do I not have the next chapter of The Count of Monte Cristo? So that'll be coming in the near future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you also for your forbearance while we went through the podcast awards. The People's Choice Podcast Awards closed for voting last weekend. And I know how annoying having to vote like that can be. There's another set of podcast awards. There's the Podcast Academy. It's kind of like the the luminaries of podcasting. And that one doesn't require voting. (laughs) That one also, however, requires being someone who goes to lots of podcasting conferences and speaks and things like that. And I, as you know, don't have the time or the wherewithal to get myself to all of these conferences. However, while I'm not going to be going to the giant podcasting conference in Chicago this summer, in September, there is a podcasting conference that is local to me. It's the Mid-Atlantic Podcasting Convention. And if you are anywhere near Philadelphia, that's where it's being held. So I am going to speak on the intersection between cognitive anchoring and podcast listening and how ignoring people like us who do things with our hands while we listen is probably not going to help you as a new podcaster. Now, I know 99.9% of you are not podcasters, but 100% of you are podcast listeners. So if you have noticed that there are podcasts that do things that make it easier for you to listen, please either email or send a voicemail at 1-206-350-1642 and let me know what that thing or those things are that podcasters do on some of your favorite podcasts to make it easier to listen, easier to remember the things that they're telling you, easier to do the things that they ask you to do. 
And conversely, and very importantly, if they do things that make it hard for you, and I'm including myself in this, if I do something that helps, great, let me know. If I do something that drives you crazy or makes it harder, let me know. Please also share that information. You can email heather at craftlit.com or call the voicemail again, 206-350-1642. Or you can use SpeakPipe, speakpipe.com slash craftlit, or use the little button on the craftlit.com website. I'm working on revising the front page of the craftlit.com website, and at some point that will go live and it will change things pretty significantly. But I am hopeful that all will be well with that. So pretty exciting stuff. I'm excited about speaking at this conference. I'm excited about sharing the concept of cognitive anchoring. I'm finding that it is coming up more and more frequently as the schools that I'm involved in or tangentially involved with are moving further and further into the world of laptops and tablets and things like that. If you have a child who needs, and I'm putting that in capital letters, to put pen to paper in order to remember things, write things down, remember them, process them, go ahead and get in touch with me because I'm working on that as well as another corollary to the cognitive anchoring talk. There's so much research that's been coming in over the last couple of years about the importance of handwriting and, and hand to paper work. And cognitively, it's fascinating, but physiologically, it's also kind of fascinating because the newer tablets, things like the Surface 4 and some of the other tablets, I think one of the newer iPads, I can't remember if it's the iPad Pro or the regular iPad. Anyway, you'll know whether you have one or not when I describe this part. They have what's called palm surface recognition, which means you could rest your hand on the screen, but still use a stylus to write with or an Apple Pencil. This is huge because those screens styli, <laughs> the, the kind of stylus that you would use with one of those screens, they are working hard to get them to mimic the feel of pencil on paper so that that resistance is there. I know some people did, they went all the way crazy, like they took scotch tape and scotch taped over very carefully, very precisely scotch taped over their screen with the, not the shiny scotch tape, but the cello tape, the invisible tape, just to create a layer that would provide some resistance while they were drawing with one of the stylus pen thingies. You don't have to go that far anymore. The newer technology supports this kind of feel, but what it means is moving forward, anyone who has access to one of those kinds of tablets and a stylus can use the tablet as a true electronic piece of paper where you can take notes with your hand and a pen. And, you know, afterwards, some apps convert those electronically into typing. I know there's an app that I actually have on iPad and iPhone. And just like the LiveScribe pens, it will record the audio and sync it with whatever it is that you are writing onto the screen so that you could later, for example, tap the play icon. The audio will start to play back. But then if you tapped a word halfway down the page that you wrote while you were listening, tap the actual place that you wrote, the handwriting that you wrote on that screen, 
tap it, it'll light up and it'll jump the audio to that point in what you were listening to. Just pretty incredible and really, really cool and made that much cooler by having access to hardware that would allow us to use real actual handwriting instead of kind of the fakey handwriting that we wind up doing with our fingertip or even a stylus now on a tablet where you can't put your hand down without messing up the ability of the tablet to to recognize handwriting. So that is all that cool stuff. And, And you may say, Heather, this is a lot more of you than we've heard for a while at the beginning of an episode. What's going on? And what's going on is that we had an epic fail this week with the Craftlet Crafty Chat. Google and YouTube completely tanked. And for perhaps the first time ever in my life, I was able to, because something really was going wrong, access a, hey, we're YouTube slash Google. Email us if you are having a technical issue. So I was able to email them and said, hey, what the what? Everything was set up right. Your system wasn't working. And they almost immediately wrote back with a, yep, we've forwarded your thing to our technical team of engineers. So it wasn't me. It wasn't you. And I'm working on the encoder, which is a nightmare, to try and make sure that next week, regardless of whether they get their act together, we will have a live stream for you. (sighs) So frustrating when that happens. So thank you for hanging out and thank you for just being awesome in the chat window. Everybody who was there, it's so much fun to watch the stream of conversation that's happening because it's really is two completely related conversations going on on a normal day where Don and Erica and I will be talking and sharing stuff, but we're also responding to things that are going on in the chat window because they're hilarious. And you guys have really cool, important things to add. And it's uh, it's just really nice to have something interactive instead of just me standing at a microphone going blah, blah, blah. And moving on from the blah, blah, we get to the Count of Monte Cristo. Well, this week, we pick up exactly where we left off. Caderousse is about to tell his story. It feels like we already know his story, right? He's told Edmund in the disguise of the Abbe Bosconi. He's already told him pretty much everything, right? But we're missing a lot of details. And in this case, it is the details that matter. Or at least it's, mm, it's the details that will hurt. And that matters. So we're going to get our details. And as a consequence, there is really nothing major that we need to go over beforehand. Everything you need to know, you know. The one term that may be a little old-fashioned is gazetted. And all it means is written down formally. It's a British word. I mean, there's gazette, like the weekly gazette that would be a newspaper. This is um, more of a formal listing of someone who's taken a new position or something that has changed officially. It is very much a Britishism. It is very much a word that is being used here because it was early Victorian British translating that was being done. It reads differently, but not significantly in the newer translation. So I think that's the only term that's kind of wonky. All right, so let's get to it. Chapter 27 of The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas, read for us. By David Clark. Chapter 27 
the story. Fair sir, said Caderousse, you must make me a promise. What is that? inquired the abbe. Why, if you ever make use of the details I am about to give you, that you will never let anyone know that it was I who supplied them, for the persons of whom I am about to talk are rich and powerful, and if they only laid the tips of their fingers on me, I should break to pieces like glass. Make yourself easy, my friend, replied the abbe. I am a priest, and confessions die in my breast. Recollect, our only desire is to carry out in a fitting manner the last wishes of our friend. Speak, then, without reserve, as without hatred. Tell the truth, the whole truth. I do not know, never may know, the persons of whom you are about to speak. Besides, I am an Italian, and not a Frenchman, and belong to God, and not to man, and I shall shortly retire to my convent, which I have only quitted to fulfil the last wishes of a dying man. This positive assurance seemed to give Caderousse a little courage. Well then, under these circumstances, said Caderousse, I will, I even believe, I ought to undeceive you as to the friendship which poor Edmond thought so sincere and unquestionable. Begin with this, father, if you please, said the abbe. Edmond talked to me a great deal about the old man, for whom he had the deepest love. The history is a sad one, sir, said Caderousse, shaking his head. Perhaps you know all the earlier part of it. Yes, sir, answered the abbe. Edmond related to me everything until the moment when he was arrested in a small cabaret close to Marseille. At La Reserve? Oh, yes, I can see it all before me this moment. Was it not his betrothal feast? It was, and the feast that began so gaily, had a very sorrowful ending. A police commissary, followed by four soldiers, entered, and Dante was arrested. Yes, and up to this point I know all, said the priest. Dante himself only knew that which personally concerned him, for he never beheld again the five persons I have named to you, or heard mention of any one of them. Well, when Dante was arrested, Monsieur Morel hastened to obtain the particular, and they were very sad. The old man returned alone to his home, folded up his wedding suit with tears in his eyes, and paced up and down his chamber the whole day, and would not go to bed at all, for I was underneath him, and heard him walking the whole night, and for myself I assure you I could not sleep either, for the grief of the poor father gave me great uneasiness, and every step he took went to my heart as really as if his foot had pressed against my breast. The next day Mercedes came to implore the protection of Monsieur de Villefort. She did not obtain it, however, and went to visit the old man. When she saw him so miserable and heartbroken, having passed a sleepless night and not touched food, since the previous day, she wished him to go with her, that she might take care of him. But the old man would not consent. No, was the old man's reply. I will not leave this house, 
for my poor dear boy loves me better than anything in the world, and if he gets out of prison, he will come and see me the first thing. And what would he think of if I did not wait here for him? I heard all this from the window, for I was anxious that Mercedes should persuade the old man to accompany her, for his footsteps over my head night and day did not leave me a moment's repose. But did you not go upstairs and try to console the poor old man? asked the abbe. Ah, sir, replied Caderousse. We cannot console those who will not be consoled, and he was one of these. Besides, I know not why, but he seemed to dislike seeing me. One night, however, I heard his sobs, and I could not resist my desire to go up to him. But when I reached his door, he was no longer weeping, but praying. I cannot now repeat to you, sir, all the eloquent words and imploring language he made use of, It was more than piety, it was more than grief, and I, who am no canter and hate the Jesuits, said then to myself, It is really well, and I am very glad that I have not any children, for if I were a father and felt such excessive grief as the old man does, and did not find in my memory or heart all he is now saying, I should throw myself into the sea at once for I could not bear it. Poor father, murmured the priest. From day to day, he lived on alone, and more and more solitary. Monsieur Morel and Mercedes came to see him, but his door was closed, and although I was certain he was at home, he would not make any answer. One day, when, contrary to his custom, he had admitted Mercedes, and the poor girl, in spite of her own grief and despair, endeavoured to console him. He said to her, Be assured, my dear doctor, he is dead, and instead of expecting him, it is he who is awaiting us. I am quite happy, for I am the oldest, and of course shall see him first. However well disposed a person may be, Why, you see, we leave off after a time seeing persons who are in sorrow. They make one melancholy, and so at last old Dante was left all to himself. And I only saw from time to time strangers go up to him and come down again with some bundle they tried to hide. But I guessed what these bundles were, and what he sold by degrees, what he had to pay for his subsistence. At length, The poor old fellow reached the end of all he had. He owed three-quarters rent, and they threatened to turn him out. He begged for another week, which was granted to him. I know this because the landlord came into my apartment when he left his. For the first three days I heard him walking about as usual, but on the fourth I heard nothing. I then resolved to go up to him at all risks, The door was closed, but I looked through the keyhole and saw him so pale and haggard that, believing him very ill, I went and told Monsieur Morel and then ran on to Mercedes. They both came immediately, Monsieur Morel bringing a doctor, and the doctor said it was inflammation of the bowels and ordered him a limited diet. 
I was there too, and I never shall forget the old man's smile at his prescription. From that time he received all who came. He had an excuse for not eating any more. The doctor had put him on a diet. The abbe uttered a kind of groan. The story interests you, does it not, sir? inquired Caderousse. Yes, replied the abbe. It is very affecting. Mercedes came again, and she found him so altered that she was even more anxious than before to have him taken to her own home. This was Monsieur Morel's wish also, who would fain have conveyed the old man against his consent. But the old man resisted and cried so that they were actually frightened. Mercedes remained, therefore, by his bedside, and Monsieur Morel went away, making a sign to the Catalan that he had left his purse on the chimney-piece. But availing himself of the doctor's order, the old man would not take any sustenance at length. After nine days of despair and fasting, the old man died, cursing those who had caused his misery and saying to Mercedes, If you ever see my Edmond again, tell him, I die blessing him. The abbe rose from his chair and made two turns round the chamber and pressed his trembling hand against his parched throat. And you believe he died? Of hunger, sir, of hunger, said Caderousse. I am as certain of it as that we two are Christians. The abbe, with a shaking hand, seized a glass of water that was standing by him, half full, swallowed it at one gulp, and then resumed his seat, with red eyes and pale cheeks. This was indeed a horrid event, he said in a hoarse voice. The more so, sir, as it was men's and not God's doing. Tell me of these men, said the abbe. And remember, too, he added in an almost menacing tone, you have promised to tell me everything. Tell me, therefore, who are these men who killed the son with despair and the father with famine? Two men, jealous of him, sir, one from love and the other from ambition, Fernand and Danglars. How was this jealousy manifested? Speak on. They denounced Edmond as a Bonapartist agent. Which of the two denounced him? Which was the real delinquent? Both, sir, one with a letter, and the other put it in the post. And where was this letter written? At La Reserve, the day before the betrothal feast. Twas so, then, twas so, then, murmured the abbe. Oh, Faria, Faria, how well did you judge men and things? What did you please to say, sir? asked Caderousse. Nothing, nothing, replied the priest. Go on. It was Danglars who wrote the denunciation with his left hand, that his writing might not be recognized, and Fernand who put it in the post. But, exclaimed the abbe suddenly, you were there yourself. I, 
said Caderousse, astonished. Who told you I was there? The abbe saw he had overshot the mark, and he added quickly, No one, but in order to have known everything so well, you must have been an eyewitness. True, true, said Caderousse in a choking voice. I, I was there. And did you not remonstrate against such infamy? asked the abbe. If not, you were an accomplice. Sir, replied Caderousse, they had made me drink to such an excess that I nearly lost all perception. I had only an indistinct understanding of what was passing around me. I said all that a man in such a state could say, but they both assured me that it was a jest they were carrying on, and perfectly harmless. Next day, next day, sir, you must have seen plain enough what they had been doing, yet you said nothing, though you were present when Dante was arrested. Yes, sir, I was there, and very anxious to speak, but Donglar restrained me. If he should be really guilty, said he, and did really put it in the island of Elba, if he is really charged with a letter for the Bonapartist committee at Paris, and if they find this letter upon him, those who have supported him will pass for his accomplice. I confess I had my fears in the state in which politics then were, and I held my tongue. It was cowardly, I confess, but it was not criminal. I understand you allowed matters to take their course. That was all. Yes, sir, answered Caderousse, and remorse preys on me night and day. I often ask pardon of God, I swear to you, because this action, the only one with which I have seriously to reproach myself in all my life, is no doubt the cause of my abject condition. I am expiating a moment of selfishness, and so I always say to La Caconte, when she complains, Hold your tongue, woman, it is the will of God. And Caderousse bowed his head with every sign of real repentance. Well, sir, said the abbe, you have spoken unreservedly, and thus to accuse yourself is to deserve a pardon. Unfortunately, Edmond is dead, and has not pardoned me. He did not know, said the abbe. But he knows it all now, interrupted Caderousse. They say the dead know everything. There was a brief silence. The abbe rose and paced up and down pensively, and then resumed his seat. You have two or three times mentioned a Monsieur Morel, he said. Who was he? The owner of the Pharaon and patron of Dante. And what part did he play in this sad drama? inquired the abbe. The part of an honest man, full of courage and real regard. Twenty times he interceded for Edmond. When the emperor returned, he wrote, implored, threatened, and so energetically that on the second restoration he was persecuted as a Bonapartist. Ten times, as I told you, he came to see Dante's father and offered to receive him in his own house. And the night or two before his death, as I have already said, he left his purse on the mantelpiece with which they paid the old man's debts and buried him decently. And so Edmond's father died, as he had lived, 
without doing harm to anyone. I have the purse still by me, a large one made of red silk. And, asked the abbe, is Monsieur Morel still alive? Yes, replied Caderousse. In that case, replied the abbe, he should be rich or happy. Caderousse smiled bitterly. Yes, happy as myself, said he. What, Monsieur Morel unhappy? exclaimed the abbe. He is reduced almost to the last extremity. Nay, he is almost at the point of dishonour. How? Yes, continued Caderousse. So it is after five and twenty years of labour, after having acquired a most honourable name in the trade of Marseille, Monsieur Morel is utterly ruined. He has lost five ships in two years, has suffered by the bankruptcy of three large houses, and his only hope now is in that very pharaoh in which poor Dante commanded, and which is expected from the Indies with a cargo of cochineal and indigo. If this ship founders like the others, he is a ruined man. And has the unfortunate man wife or children? inquired the abbe. Yes, he has a wife, who through everything has behaved like an angel. He has a daughter, who was about to marry the man she loved, but whose family now will not allow him to wed the daughter of a ruined man. He has, besides, a son, a lieutenant in the army, and, as you may suppose, all this, instead of lessening, only augments his sorrows. If he were alone in the world, you would blow out his brains, and there would be an end. Horrible! ejaculated the priest. And it is thus heaven recompenses virtue, sir, added Caderousse. You see, I who never did a bad action, but that I have told you of, I mean destitution, with my poor wife dying of fever before my very eyes, and I unable to do anything in the world for her. I should die of hunger as old Dante did, while Fernand and Danglars are rolling in wealth. How is that? Because their deeds have brought them good fortune, while honest men have been reduced to misery. What has become of Danglars, the instigator and therefore the most guilty? What has become of him? Why, he left Marseille and was taken on the recommendation of Monsieur Morel, who did not know his crime, as cashier into a Spanish bank. During the war with Spain, he was employed in the commissariat of the French army and made a fortune. Then with that money he speculated in the funds and trebled or quadrupled his capital. And having first married his banker's daughter, who left him a widower, he has married a second time, a widow, a Madame de Nargonne, daughter of Monsieur de Servieux, the king's chamberlain, who is in high favour at court. He is a millionaire, and they have made him a baron, and now he is the Baron d'Anglars, with a fine residence on the Rue de Mont Blanc, with ten horses in his stables, six footmen in his antechamber, and I know not how many millions in his strong box. Ah, said the abbe in a peculiar tone, he is happy. Happy? Who can answer for that? Happiness or unhappiness is the secret known but to oneself and the walls. Walls have ears but no tongue. 
But if a large fortune produces happiness, Danglar is happy. And Fernand. Fernand? Why, much the same story. But how could a poor Catalan fisher boy without education or resources make a fortune? I confess this staggers me. And it has staggered everybody. There must have been in his life some strange secret that no one knows. But then, by what visible steps has he attained his high fortune or high position? Both, sir. He has both fortune and position, both. This must be impossible. It would seem so, but listen, and you will understand. Some days before the return of the emperor, Fernand was drafted. The Bourbons left him quietly enough at the Catalans, but Napoleon returned. A special levy was made, and Fernand was compelled to join. I went too, but as I was older than Fernand, and had just married my poor wife, I was only sent to the coast. Fernand was enrolled in the active troop, went to the frontier with his regiment, and was at the Battle of Ligny. The night after that battle he was sentry at the door of a general who carried on a secret correspondence with the enemy. That same night the general was to go over to the English. He proposed to Fernand to accompany him. Fernand agreed to do so, deserted his post and followed the general. Fernand would have been court-martialed if Napoleon had remained on the throne, but his action was rewarded by the Bourbons. He returned to France with the epaulette of sub-lieutenant, and as the protection of the general, who is in the highest favour, was accorded to him. He was a captain in 1823, during the Spanish War, that is to say, at the time when Donglar made his early speculations. Fernand was a Spaniard, and being sent to Spain to ascertain the feeling of his fellow countrymen, found Donglar, got on very intimate terms with him, won over the support of the royalists at the capital, and in the provinces received promises and made pledges on his own part, guided his regiment by paths known to himself alone through the mountain gorges which were held by the royalists, and in fact rendered such service in this brief campaign that after taking of Trocadero he was made colonel and received the title of count and the cross of an officer of the Legion of Honour. Destiny! Destiny! murmured the abbe. Yes, but listen, this was not all. The war with Spain being ended, Fernand's career was checked by the long peace which seemed likely to endure throughout Europe. Greece only had risen against Turkey and had begun her war of independence. All eyes were turned towards Athens. It was the fashion to pity and support the Greeks. The French government, without protecting them openly, as you know, gave countenance to volunteer assistance. Fernand sought and obtained leave to go and serve in Greece, still having his name kept on the army roll. Some time after, it was stated that the Comte de Morcerf, this was the name he bore, had entered the service of Ali Pasha with the rank of Instructor General. Ali Pasha was killed, as you know, but before he died, he recompensed the service of Fernand by leaving him a considerable sum, with which he returned to France when he was gazetted Lieutenant General.
So that now, inquired the abbe, so that now, continued Calarus, he owns a magnificent house, numero 27, Rue du Helder, Paris. The abbe opened his mouth, hesitated for a moment, then, making an effort at self-control, he said, And Mercedes, they tell me that she has disappeared. Disappeared, said Caderousse. Yes, as the sun disappears, to rise the next day with still more splendor. Has she made a fortune also? inquired the abbe with an ironical smile. Mercedes is at this moment one of the greatest ladies in Paris, replied Caderousse. Go on, said the abbe. It seems as if I were listening to the story of a dream, but I have seen things so extraordinary that what you tell me seems less astonishing than it otherwise might. Mercedes was at first in the deepest despair at the blow which deprived her of Edmond. I have told you of her attempts to propitiate Monsieur de Villefort, her devotion to the elder Dante. In the midst of her despair, a new affliction overtook her. This was the departure of Fernand, of Fernand whose crime she did not know and whom she regarded as her brother. Fernand went, and Mercedes remained alone. Three months passed, and still she wept. No news of Edmond, no news of Fernand, no companionship save that of an old man who was dying with despair. One evening, after a day of accustomed vigil at the angle of two roads leading to Marseille from the Catalans, she returned to her home more depressed than ever. Suddenly, she heard a step she knew, turned anxiously around. The door opened and Fernand, dressed in the uniform of a sub-lieutenant, stood before her. It was not the one she wished for most, but it seemed as if a part of her past had returned to her. Mercedes seized Fernand's hands with a transport which he took for love, but which was only joy at being no longer alone in the world, and seeing at last a friend, after long hours of solitary sorrow. And then, it must be confessed, Fernand had never been hated. He was only not precisely loved. Another possessed all Mercedes' heart, that other was absent, had disappeared, perhaps was dead. At this last thought, Mercedes burst into a flood of tears and wrung her hands in agony. But the thought, which she had always repelled before when it was suggested to her by another, came now in full force upon her mind. And then, too, old Dante incessantly said to her, Our Edmond is dead. If he were not... He would return to us. The old man died, as I have told you. Had he lived, Mercedes, perchance, had not become the wife of another, for he would have been there to reproach her infidelity. Fernand saw this, and when he learned of the old man's death, he returned. He was now a lieutenant. At his first coming, he had not said a word of love to Mercedes. At the second, he reminded her that he loved her. Mercedes begged for six months more in which to await and mourn for Edmond. 
So that, uh, said the abbe with a bitter smile, that makes eighteen months in all. What more could the most devoted lover desire? Then he murmured the words of the English poet. Frailty, thy name is woman. Six months afterwards, continued Caderousse, the marriage took place in the church of Acoul, the very church in which she was to have married Edmond, murmured the priest. There was only a change of bridegrooms. Well, Mercedes was married, proceeded Caderousse, but although in the eyes of the world she appeared calm, she nearly fainted as she passed La Reserve, where eighteen months before the betrothal had been celebrated with him whom she might have known she still loved, had she looked to the bottom of her heart. Fernand, more happy but not more at his ease, for I saw at this time he was in constant dread of Edmond's return. Fernand was very anxious to get his wife away, and to depart himself. There were too many unpleasant possibilities associated with the Catalans, and eight days after the wedding they left Marseille. "'Did you ever see Mercedes again?' inquired the priest. "'Yes. During the Spanish war at Perpignan, where Fernand had left her, she was attending to the education of her son.' The abbé started. "'Her son?' said he. "'Yes,' replied Caderousse. "'Little Albert.' "'But then, to be able to instruct her child,' continued the abbé, she must have received an education herself. I understood from Edmond that she was the daughter of a simple fisherman, beautiful but uneducated. Oh, replied Caderousse, did he know so little of this lovely betrothed? Mercedes might have been a queen, sir, if the crown were to be placed on the heads of the loveliest and most intelligent. Fernand's fortune was already waxing great, and she developed with his growing fortune. She learned drawing, music, everything. Besides, I believe between ourselves she did this in order to distract her mind that she might forget, and she only filled her head in order to alleviate the weight on her heart. But now her position in life is assured, continued Caderousse. No doubt fortune and honours have comforted her. She is rich, a countess, and yet... Caderousse paused. And yet what? asked the abbé. Yet I am sure she is not happy, said Caderousse. What makes you believe this? Why, when I found myself utterly destitute, I thought my old friends would perhaps assist me. So I went to Donglar, who would not even receive me, I called on Fernand, who sent me a hundred francs by his valet de chambre. Then you did not see either of them? No, but Madame de Morcerf saw me. How was that? As I went away, a purse fell at my feet. It contained five and twenty louis. I raised my head quickly and saw Mercedes, who at once shut the blind. And Monsieur de Villefort? asked the abbé. Oh, he never was a friend of mine. I did not know him, and I had nothing to ask of him. Do you not know what became of him, 
and the share he had in Edmond's misfortunes. No, I only know that some time after Edmond's arrest, he married Mademoiselle de Saint-Méran, and soon after left Marseille. No doubt he has been as lucky as the rest. No doubt he is as rich as Donglar, as high in station as Fernand. I only, as you see, have remained poor, wretched, and forgotten. You are mistaken, my friend, replied the abbe. God may seem sometimes to forget for a time while his justice reposes, but there always comes a moment when he remembers, and behold, a proof. As he spoke, the abbe took the diamond from his pocket, and giving it to Caderousse said, Here, my friend, take this diamond. It is yours. What? For me only? cried Caderousse. Ah, sir, do not jest with me. This diamond was to have been shared among his friends. Edmond had one friend only, and thus it cannot be divided. Take the diamond, then, and sell it. It is worth fifty thousand francs, and I repeat my wish that this son may suffice to release you from your wretchedness. Oh, sir, said Caderousse, putting out one hand timidly, and with the other wiping away the perspiration which bedewed his brow. Oh, sir, do not make a jest of the happiness or despair of a man. I know what happiness and what despair are, and I never make a jest of such feelings. Take it, then. But in exchange... Caderousse, who touched the diamond, withdrew his hand. The abbe smiled. In exchange, he continued, give me the red silk purse that Monsieur Morel left on old Dante's chimney-piece, and which you tell me is still in your hands. Caderousse, more and more astonished, went toward a large oaken cupboard, opened it, and gave the abbe a long purse of faded red silk, round which were two copper runners that had once been gilt. The abbe took it, and in return gave Caderousse the diamond. "'Oh, you are a man of God, sir,' cried Caderousse. "'For no one knew that Edmond had given you his diamond, "'and you might have kept it.' "'Which,' said the abbé to himself, "'you would have done.' The abbé rose, took his hat and gloves. "'Well,' he said, "'all you have told me is perfectly true, then, "'and I may believe it in every particular.' See, sir, replied Caderousse, in this corner is a crucifix in holy wood. Here on this shelf is my wife's testament. Open this book, and I will swear upon it with my hand on the crucifix. I will swear to you by my soul's salvation, my faith as a Christian. I have told everything to you as it occurred, and as the recording angel will tell it to the ear of God at the day of the last judgment. Tis well, said the abbe, convinced by his manner and tone that Caderousse spoke the truth. "'Tis well, and may this money profit you. Adieu. I go far from men who thus so bitterly injure each other. The abbe with difficulty got away from the enthusiastic thanks of Caderousse, opened the door himself, got out, and mounted his horse, once more saluted the innkeeper, who kept uttering his loud farewells, 
and then returned by the road he had travelled in coming. When Caderousse turned around, he saw behind him La Carconte, paler and trembling more than ever. Is then all that I have heard really true? she inquired. What? That he has given the diamond to us only? inquired Caderousse, half bewildered with joy. Yes, nothing more true. See, here it is. The woman gazed at it a moment and then said in a gloomy voice, Suppose it's false. Caderousse started and turned pale. False, he muttered. False? Why should that man give me a false diamond? To get your secret without paying for it, you blockhead. Caderousse remained for a moment aghast under the weight of such an idea. Oh, he said, taking up his hat, which he placed on the red handkerchief tied around his head. We will soon find out. In what way? Why, the fair is on at Beaucaire. There are always jewellers from Paris there, and I will show it to them. Look after the house, wife, and I shall be back in two hours. And Caderousse left the house in haste, and ran rapidly in the direction opposite to that which the priest had taken. Fifty thousand francs, muttered La Carconte, when left alone. It is a large sum of money. But it is not a fortune. End of chapter 27 And that is the end of the first book. Sometimes it's called the first volume, sometimes it's called the first book, but this is our transition out of our original Edmund Dantes, young, innocent Edmund Dantes story, and into, really into, the Count of the Count of Monte Cristo. Poor, young, innocent Edmund has learned some life lessons. He has gained some wisdom. He has gained a fortune and a fabulous boat and evidently an alter ego, the Abbe Busconi. And now he has gained knowledge of what has happened to his adversaries and where they are, for the most part. And those things were all required before we could move on to phase two. So next week we get the beginning of phase two, which should be a lot of fun. I went down a rabbit hole this week when I was researching cochineal and indigo. These are the things that are on Monsieur Morel's boat that we are waiting to see if it enters the harbor safely. If it does, then his fortune has been resecured. If it doesn't, he is a ruined, ruined man. And then I thought, cochineal and indigo, hmm, I've died with cochineal and indigo before. I wonder how expensive those things were back then. You know, how much of a fortune are we talking about for Monsieur Morel? And the answer is huge and vast. Cochineal came from South America, still comes from South America. These are female little tiny beetles that feast on the, on the paddle-shaped leaves of the prickly pear cacti. They are little, 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 little five millimeter long beetles that will kind of burrow into the top of the flesh of the prickly pear. And then some poor person has to come along and there's an old picture on Wikipedia of someone coming along with a deer's tail. So this is after you have eaten the deer, you take the tail, which makes a lot of sense. 
because you have the furry part, but you also have kind of the firm cartilagey part in the middle. And you would need both to get these beetles because what they would do is put a plate underneath the Palo Verde paddle frond piece and then use the deer tail to brush the beetles off of the cacti onto the plate. And that means you'd have to have kind of the firm part to dislodge them, but you want the brush part because there's all those thorns sticking out of the prickly pear. So it takes tons, tons of these beetles to make a kilogram. It takes 80,000 to 100,000 of these little beetles to make one kilogram of the cochineal dye, which of course is a lot because you're going to dilute it and all this stuff. But the body of this animal is a particular acid that is also used to make the carmine color. And it's really pretty impressive. You have to dry them out until they lose about 30% of their original weight. And it's a acidic compound that they have left over. It's an acid called a carminic acid, which keeps predators away, but also is what turns these little bugs eventually into this fabulous dye. Eventually in the 1800s, not too long after this, there was synthetic red that was created that was almost as good. But the red of the cochineal is really pretty impressive, and it works best with wools and silks with protein-based fibers, and it really gives you an eye-popping red. Indigo is also incredibly important as a dye stuff. It produces this beautiful blue, which you have probably seen before, but it also has kind of interesting background. Up until the time that they found indigo, and there was indigo in India, and it also got cultivated in the New World. People, especially in Northern Europe, were using woad, W-O-A-D. You may have heard woad referred to with the movie Braveheart, when the guys had painted their faces blue and ran into battle, which you can imagine would freak out your enemies back then. Woad was also used not just as a face paint, but as a dye for fabric. Indigo gives a bit more of a brilliant blue and a dark blue, and it also is trickier in many ways to use. It also does this really funky thing where when you take it out of the dye bath, it looks kind of bluish green and not very dark, and then almost immediately the interaction between the dye, and it's a hot dye bath, the interaction between the dye and the oxygen in the air changes the color actively in front of your eyes into the color blue that you think of when you think of indigo. Both of these were products that would have been brought over from the New World. That means that the Ferion, whether it made the entire journey to the New World or the West Indies or not, it would have gone down out to Portugal, down to some port in Northern Africa to pick up the load of cochineal and indigo. Huge commodities in the Mediterranean, huge commodities in France. So that was my little research rabbit hole that I went down for this week's episode. But it was so interesting. And I I actually have linked to several of the documents that I found while I was researching stuff because some of them are really cool. And then I also included a couple of pictures. There's one picture of indigo balls. This is when you prepare indigo, actually when you prepare indigo or woad, 
you take the leaves and you have to ferment them, which you can imagine is not going to smell very good. And in fact, I guess Queen Elizabeth decreed that there would be no dye production within 10 miles of any place she was going to be living because the fermented leaf smell was pretty gross. But you have to break down, I think it's actually getting rid of, as the fermentation process is getting rid of a bunch of sugar that's in the leaves. And then what you're left over is what you can use to make the dye. But where I was going is that the, the people who worked with indigo preparing the leaves to become dye eventually would have black hands or dark blue hands because they'd have to roll these leaves up into these balls. So they look like those kind of effervescent bath balls that are so popular right now. And that's, that's what you put in the dye bath. Made it easier to measure, I suppose, you know, but odd nonetheless. And I found a picture of some that's just lovely from this, uh, this guy's blog. He lives in Japan and he does shibori technique dyeing and some of his stuff is just extraordinary. So if you click on the picture, that'll take you to his blog and you can read all about what he does. It's pretty cool. The only other thing I wanted to go over at the end with you was Ali Pasha. Ali Pasha gets mentioned in this chapter because of Fernand. And Fernand got himself into the service. He did well. And then he asks to go to Greece while remaining conscripted in the French army. Now, I think that's kind of unique because wouldn't it mean that you'd be racking up your French military pension while fighting for the Greek? It might. It doesn't matter. France supported the Greeks in their campaign against the Turks. This is the same time period of Greek history that Lord Byron got mixed up in. And that's how he wound up dying, uh, what, at the ripe old age of 36? In the Greek campaign, he was training soldiers in Greece. Fernand comes over to Greece during the same time period. I'm going to read to you a quote about Ali Pasha. And this, this actually comes from Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo also wrote about Ali Pasha. But he's a real guy. His name means the lion. And he was, you know, he's kind of considered a thug by the West, which, why should that surprise me? But he was big in Greece. He was big in Albania. And he was viewed by France and Britain as being pretty ahead of his time for being a ruler. So they liked working with him. And he died rather spectacularly. But Victor Hugo wrote about him in a collection of poems. And in the preface to the first edition, he wrote this. He wrote that, quote unquote, Asian barbarism cannot be so lacking in great men as civilized Europe would like to imagine. And then this is the quote. One must remember that it that is, Asia, has produced the only colossus that this century can offer who will measure up to Napoleon Bonaparte, if anyone can be said to do so. This man of genius, in truth a Turk and a Tartar, is Ali Pasha, who is to Napoleon as the tiger to the lion or the vulture to the eagle. So Ali Pasha was really, really recognized as a big deal. And for Fernand to have wound up working with slash for him is also not a small thing. Not only because Ali Pasha rewarded him financially, but with that financial award, he also conferred some of his gravitas on Fernand, you know, that, that he saw Fernand as being worthy of this kind of honor. 
And that carried some weight clearly when Fernand got back to France. So Ali Pasha in many ways set him up, set Fernand up for being a success. And Mercedes is now a really important woman. And our modern count, Edmond, now knows that. And that's important. So three guesses. How do you think Caterus is going to spend the money he gets? <laughs> ah, Caterus and his lovely wife. Ah, it won't be the last time we see them, just so you know. They're fun. But that is pretty much it. Thank you again for all your support during the podcast awards. Keep your eyes open for a newsletter with the new summer schedule so that you know when episodes will go live. And thank you, too, to our new Patreon patrons. Those patrons are Franziska, Tammy, Catherine, Cindy, and my old friend Marna, back in my Kaplan days. Marna, great teacher, great colleague, so much fun to work with, and such a huge supporter of Craftlet. Thanks, Marna. Well, today I'd like to play you out with a little piece of audio from Tara. All right, here you go. Have a great one. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Hi, Heather. It's Tara. Worcester Dash Wait on Ravelry. I'm sitting here watching my husband play Fallout for Far Harbor and listening to Chapter 25. And it's the book talk at the end where we're talking about Dante and his slow-moving plotting for revenge, and it reminded me of a post I saw on Facebook. It goes like this. If revenge is sweet, and revenge is a dish best served cold, we can only come to the conclusion that revenge is ice cream. I thought that you and the listeners would get a good chuckle out of that. I hope you're having a great week, Heather, and I hope your sister is doing well and not too swoon by baby birthing and the flu and all the malaise that has gone with it. I hope you're having a great weekend, Heather. Bye. If you like getting free audiobooks with benefits every week, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash craftlet. There are rewards waiting for you beyond, you know, the free podcast. You can also subscribe to our premium streaming audio by tapping the red lock when you are looking at the app or at the show notes at craftlet.libsyn.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for a premium download subscription by following the links in the right-hand sidebar at craftlet.com. And if it's easier for you, you can always subscribe and review at iTunes and at Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook, support us at Patreon, and come with us on tour. For nine years, Craftlet has been kept going by the support of you, the listener. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on 